0: Amen. Well, you can have a seat up in your copy of God's Word to Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. We're going to look at verses 3 through 14, which is a 202 single word sentence in the original language filled with praise. I read one place, it was called The Most Monstrous Conglomeration of Greek Anywhere. I'm so glad we get to read it this morning. It is filled with praise. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning of verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And love you predestined us who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. I really felt led when we ended the book of Titus to take a couple of weeks, three weeks or so, and walk through the way that we apply the gospel to our life talk about the importance of the gospel and how we live every single day. It's not just that which you need to understand in order to be saved, and after understanding it, you become a Christian, and then you don't understand then the fullness of the gospel. No, it's something we need that is the very power from which we live each and every day for the glory of God. So what we've been talking about starting last week is how to apply the gospel to those very real feelings that we are all grappled with that come to us thanks to our original parents and what we find back in Genesis chapter 3 where it all turned bad after God placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and told them they could eat of any fruit of any tree except for one when they believed the lie of the enemy and the woman took the fruit and gave it to the man and both of them ate. Verses 7 and 8 are some of the saddest verses in all the Bible because of the impact that have been felt ever since. Because after eating, it says their eyes were open, which is the way of the Bible talking about their guilt. Then they tried to cover up their nakedness because they were ashamed, which is the Bible's way of describing shame. And then it says that they did what they could not even begin to try to do before a God who knows all things and sees all things. They tried to hide themselves from the Lord in their fear of having to face them. So in that we have the three greatest problems that we face, guilt, shame, and fear that we have wrestled with ever since as believers in Jesus, and we need the gospel every day to speak into all three of those matters. So this morning we're going to talk about how the gospel speaks into the issue of our shame. And shame is something that we all have to face. This past week I was struck by turning on the news and watching the verdict of Derek Chauvin I'm sure you may have joined me in that. The majority of America did. That case about the death of George Floyd that captivated our country, that all of us tuned in and we watched the verdict together. I'm so thankful for the way that Dr. Moeller on the briefing gave us a way to put this whole decade of uh, this greatest, one of the greatest events that will mark our decade into perspective for us. When he talked about what that trial was really all about is is it dealt with the the crime of homicide, and that homicide is such a brutal, awful crime because it's something that that is founded all the way back in Genesis chapter 9 in the Noahic Covenant. God responds strongly against homicide from very early in the Bible because it is such an affront to those who bear the image of God. And through the death of George Floyd, we see this verdict of homicide. We see how it is right for us not only to talk about Floyd's death, not just as death now, but as murder. But closely connected to that heinous assault against God's image that we saw depicted in that crime, we also have to grapple with this morning's focus, which is something that is very related to that. But what we're talking about this morning as we deal with shame is something that is an even more common experience. It might be true that some of us may have faced or felt the effect of homicide. But while that might be true of some of us, all of us at some point in our lives have felt the full impact of shame, which also is an affront to the very image of those who bear the image of God. And oftentimes when we talk biblically about the effects of sin and we talk about shame, we say it interchangeably with guilt. And while guilt is that which can devastate us, to say guilt and shame are interchangeable is a rightful thing to say, but I don't think it is saying enough. Because guilt can be a good thing when it drives us to accept God's verdict of our sins so that we can then Move to seeing our relationship with God and one another restored. But I don't see anything good in the feeling of shame. Guilt is feeling bad for the things we've done, but shame is that which hits us at our core. It comes to us when we feel bad because of who we think we are. Sam Louie rightfully says that it comes from a perverse and a distorted belief that we are inherently unworthy of love. So shame leaves no room for healthy guilt. It distorts what it means to be made in the image of God. And the only place where shame will leave you, lead you is to hopeless condemnation. But just as Pastor Charles has already read this morning from Romans chapter 8, thankfully, gospel power has been given to us and through the gospel, God has spoken a better word, and that is a word that we can receive every day. Romans 8, 1 says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have truly been set free from the law of sin and death. So this morning, we're going to see how the voice of shame is canceled and replaced by the voice of Christ. And we read it about it all through Ephesians chapter 1. I hope you were struck by these wonderful truths that tell us who we are in Christ Jesus. This is a long sentence, 202 words, 11 times in this sentence it speaks the repeated phrase in Christ or in him, that our value, that who we are is completely made full in our relationship with Jesus. Jesus. So when we look at these words and we have to face the shame of our original parents, this is what I want you to think about every time you open the Bible to Ephesians chapter 1. God rescues us when we feel shame through our union with Jesus. That is our rescue. The relationship that we have in Christ and what we discover about ourselves only in Christ. So we're going to unpack that today as we look at these 202 Wonderful words in this original sentence. And I want you to notice how verse 3 captures what we'll find in the remainder of our text. It tells us, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That the heavenly places is the sphere from which every spiritual blessing comes. And every one of those blessings are given to us, are bestowed upon us through Christ. And so that's what we're going to look at today. And as we unpack these verses, we're going to begin to see how this spells out, especially in verses 4 through 6. As these verses contain some of the most essential truths that we need as we fight this feeling of shame that can overcome us. And in verses 4 through 6, God tells us that in Jesus, you as an image-bearer of the Lord, are deeply valued. You're deeply valued. First, I want us to see about what the Father has done for us in choosing us and bestowing that value on us. And we discover all these things in relationship with Christ. Listen to what it says. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him, In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. These verses tell us unequivocally that we are valued by God the Father. That all the way back into eternity past, even before the world began, even before Genesis 1-1 came into full effect and this world was created, God's good and mysterious purposes for your life We're already determined. And this language here is beautiful. Sometimes we get messed up by it because we read words like we are chosen or we are predestined. And it makes us uncomfortable. But I hope we read it within the context that it's given. Because in doing so, all of your discomfort will go away. We're discomforted when we read these words because we don't understand the other attributes of God. But right here in verses 4, 5, and 6, we see those other attributes beautifully. God is a God who is perfect in his love. God is a God who lavishes us with his grace. God is a God who does everything in agreement with his perfect will and his perfect wisdom. And in all of that context, the Bible tells us that the Father has chosen you and he selected you as being one who has received adoption from him. This is beautiful. When we understand it rightly, church, we don't have to worry whether or not we're going to be the ones left out of the team, the ones that don't make the cut list when we get to heaven. We don't have to worry about all of this. All of this is beautiful language to let us know that in God's sovereign plan, he has adopted you In Christ Jesus. And this is wonderful for us. When the voice of shame comes to you telling you you're not worth anything, God speaks a different word and says he has chosen you and he is predetermined to give you this wonderful life. Live for his glory. Now as we understand what this doctrine means, I really think it's helpful for us to think about things the way that I was so blessed as I read Russ Moore's book, on the doctrine of election. And in that doctrine of election and the doctrine of adoption, he explains very clearly that when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, do you know what happened? The Garden of Eden was turned from a beautiful garden in which man walked intimately with the Lord into an orphanage. And in that orphanage of humanity, because of our sin, we were cut off from our heavenly Father but you know what this doctrine tells us? That the Father did not leave us in that state. Through the finished work of Jesus, you know what the Father essentially did? He went into that orphanage and he found you and he found me in the sea of humanity of all the people. And out of that orphanage, he chose us and he decided to adopt us and bring us into a love relationship with him. And this is Fantastic news. My mom and dad are here this morning. So glad they come and that they're able to be here. But you know what's true of my parents? Like it or not, the day I was born on January 31st, 1978, if they liked what came out or didn't like it, they were stuck with me. But even greater than that is this doctrine of adoption, that the Heavenly Father stepped into the orphanage of humanity and he chose us in him in christ to lavish us with his love and his grace this is an incredible amazing abundant truth so in the doctrine of adoption do you see how it fights against your shame of saying you're not worth anything god declares that you are and in that declaration you now have a vertical relationship with a heavenly father who's adopted you and made you one of his own But you know what else is true of this glorious doctrine of adoption? There's not just a vertical component to it. There's a horizontal component to it. Because not only do you now have a heavenly father, but you now have spiritual brothers and sisters within the church. That's what it means to be adopted into this family. And this fights against shame because this tells us that within the church of the Lord Jesus, you have a place to belong. And this is a rich and wonderful truth. Allie and I used to spend time with a family that she used to babysit for when we were in seminary I had these beautiful little girls that they had adopted. And from the time I met Allie, when we had first met, she would go out with regularity to spend time with these girls that she just loved and cared for. And she told me one of the things that used to aggravate the mom of these beautiful daughters so deeply is when they would have them out in public and someone would pull them aside and say, hey, I want to ask you a question. Are, are your two girls sisters? And the mom would say, absolutely, they're my daughters. Of course they're sisters. No, she said, y- you know what I mean. Are they sisters by blood? Are they related? And Allie's, and Miss and Dishman used to tell us how that would just run right through her because people would say that, not meaning ill will, but they just would not get it at all. The moment that the gotcha day happened and those girls became a part of their family, they were her her daughters, and they were sisters for life. In church, we just don't understand what it fully means to be a part of the church of the Lord Jesus, the spiritual family that God has adopted us into and called us to share life with forever as brothers and sisters of one another. We just don't even understand what the Bible means when it tells us that we're brothers. You know how we like to use the word brother? Can I be honest? Sometimes it's the word that we use when we can't remember the name of the person when we greet them. Hey, brother, how are you? Can I tell you that was the word that I got before I met Allie a few times when someone would come up to me and say, I just don't think I want to date you anymore. I think we're best to be brothers in the Lord. Yeah, I know what that means. See, we have changed the word entirely. We've given it this word that means friend, and we've dumbed it down. and It's lost, it's important, that in Christ, when you are adopted into his family, you are made a brother or sister in him. Can I ask you why we don't treat each other that way? Why we think of church as something that we consume instead of a family that we have joined? If we really understand the fullness of the gospel and the family that we're brought into through the spirit of adoption, there's a vertical component that you have a heavenly father in Christ. And in Jesus Christ, we have brothers and sisters in which we share life with. This is a beautiful way to show us from the text that when the voice of shame comes into your head and you know that you know that you know you're in Christ, you are valued in him. Do what the Father has done for you and adopting you into his family. But along with this adoption, not only does the text say you are valued, you are valued, but it also says you are restored. Here's the language of redemption yet again beginning in verse seven. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, that he lavished on us with all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his good purpose. You have been redeemed through the power of Jesus' precious blood. And the language of redemption, yet again, is marketplace language that speaks of the fact that a purchase has been made. I'll always remember when I was in a kid in the youth group at First Baptist Douglasville, my youth pastor used to teach us about redemption by telling us a story that I want to share with you. To this day, it's probably the most beautiful illustration of what it means to be redeemed. There's a little boy who he and his dad got together and decided to spend quality time together by building together a sailboat. And they worked for days on the sailboat. And they finally finished it, they painted it, and that was the treasured possession of that little boy. He had poured his heart and soul into working on that with his dad, and every day that he could, he would go out by the river close to their house and he would float his sailboat down the river. On one occasion, the wind had picked up, the current was a little stronger than he thought. And after he set the boat in the water, before he realized that it had gotten away from him, and he sadly watched it go all the way down the river out of sight, and there was not anything he could do to reclaim it. Well, every single day, he looked for a sailboat. He'd go out by the river. He would hope that someone would leave it on the side. He would look around for it. And after so many days, the days turned into weeks, and he eventually gave up until the day that he was walking through town. And he looked up in the window of one of the stores in the downtown, and he saw there in the window his sailboat. Sure enough, it was his. He went into a choir about it, and someone had found it, had sold it to the store owner, and the owner was then turning it around for a profit. He asked very quickly, well, sir, what is the cost of the sailboat? And he told him the price, and he went home, and as fast as he could, he went to his piggy bank, and he broke it open, and he found exactly what he needed to go back and buy that sailboat. And he went to the store owner. He presented the money. He made the transaction. The boat became his. And while he left the store holding his sailboat in his hands, he looked down at it, and this is what he said. Now you're twice mine. Because first I made you, but now I bought you. And do you know that's exactly what Christ has done for you through the work of redemption? The Father has chosen you, but the Son has redeemed you. God had made you, but he didn't leave you in a state of separation from him. He's redeemed you through the precious blood of Jesus. And because of that, you have a relationship with him. And he's filled your life with such purpose as a result. Do you see what the text says? He has redeemed you according to the riches of his grace that he's lavished upon you. According to all of his wisdom and all of his insight. Making known to you the mystery of his will. He has redeemed you and filled your life with purpose to live each day for the glory of God. And here's the glorious truth of all of this doctrine. Not only is it just true that you are restored. Not only is it true that you are forgiven, but Jesus is in the business of doing that for all of his creation. God looks upon all that is happening on the earth. He considers all that's happening in the glory of heaven. And in salvation, he's working all things on earth to work themselves out. Even the most awful things work for his glory so that everything in heaven and everything on earth will meet. Evil is here; is something we have to contend with. And all creation is presently groaning, it says in Romans 8. But in the fullness of time, John Stott says, God's two creations, his whole universe and his whole church, will be united under the cosmic Christ who is the supreme head of them both. So this just shows you the power and the might and the authority of Christ. The one who redeemed you has called you to live your life according to his purposes, under his lordship and his authority. And he's doing the same for all of his creation, bringing everything into agreement with his perfect will. So when you face those voices of shame, know that God's word declares that you are valued. God has chosen you. He's adopted you in the sea of humanity and called you his own. Jesus has redeemed you. You're twice his. God made you and now you've been bought by him. I love this truth. Not long ago, my, I had a family member purchase a, a boat, a 1960 Boston Whaler. It's similar to the boat that our chairman of the deacons, Bob Poole, loves to drive around in and ride. These things are hard to find. Their price is unbelievable. They're very costly to have one of these. You know it's true. When you think about God's plan of redemption, sometimes that which has been restored is even more valuable than if it had never left mint condition. That is the mystery of the plan of God and this glory that he receives through redemption as it unfolds in our lives. And he has endowed you with that kind of of value. He's restored you so fully in the finished work of Jesus. So in Christ, you are valued. In Jesus, you are restored. And then the work of the Trinity is still in play because the Spirit does a work in verses 10 through 14. And you know what it says there? You are guaranteed an inheritance. It says, in him we have obtained an inheritance. This is similar language to what we read about in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 that tells us that God is keeping an inheritance in heaven that cannot be corrupted for us. And when it says you have obtained an inheritance, what he, Ephesians says is, is as if it's already yours. The promise is that the Spirit has sealed this for you. It's like the down payment has been made and the price will be paid in full for all of eternity. You'll get the fullness of the inheritance that the eternal ruler of the universe has for you. How incredible is this? Bill Gates is a very wealthy man. He does significant things for people. I was amazed when I learned recently one of the 17 objectives of the United Nations One of the main ones is to provide clean drinking water for people all around the world, and Gates has committed his life to making that happen. It's an admirable thing to do. I wish his gospel went way further to things that are eternal value, but it's incredible when you think about it. He is a philanthropist. He is worth $98 billion. He and his wife Melinda. Can you imagine having a bank account like that? I don't think they have to wonder if they're going to get the Papa John's Bucks. You know, I can't imagine living that way. Every time I do, I could get $10 off if I keep up with this. I bet Bill Gates doesn't even have to think about a Kroger Plus car. (laughs) He doesn't pay any attention to the $0.10 or more he gets and the victory that I feel when I get $0.40 a gallon because I have a whole family to feed. None of that even crosses his mind. And Bill and Melinda Gates are sharing their life together worth a hundred billion dollars, an amount of money that you can't even get your arms around. And you think about that, he, I learned recently, has three children. And out of that 98 billion dollars, it has been told that they are getting 10 million each in their inheritance. That's all right, isn't it? The rest of it is going to fund all of his philanthropic causes, but my goodness. Can you imagine being related to a man like that? Can you imagine getting a letter in the mail saying that for whatever the reasons, he selected you to be a part of his, and that would be all right, wouldn't it? You made your way into Bill Gates' will. You think about that, and you think, there is no way that could ever happen for me. How amazing would that be to be included in the will of someone that wealthy? And we don't stop and we don't realize that Ephesians 3 tells us that we have obtained an inheritance. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And in him, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, when you believed in him and became a Christian, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of your inheritance. Until you require possession of it to the praise of his glory. This text tells us that it's even much more glorious to know that there'll come a day that we receive the fullness of our inheritance as a son or daughter of the universe's eternal king. And that promise is given to us in the Holy Spirit, it is sealed for us on our heart. The Spirit keeps this to make sure that it's there. Isn't this incredible? Why in the world will we listen to a voice of shame? God has declared us to be of such value. God has declared that we are restored in Christ Jesus. God has declared that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit and have an eternal inheritance awaiting for us forever and ever in his presence. That's pretty amazing. You know, when I think about all of these truths, I'm reminded of a story that I heard about years ago of a man who was of immense wealth and his favorite thing to do was to gather together a private art collection. And this was the art collection of the ages. He had in his collection Picasso and Monet and Van Gogh Pieces of work that the world was just amazed as he had used his resources to gather this incredible private collection. But the piece of art in his collection that was his favorite wasn't any of these. It was a portrait of his son. He loved his son with all of his life, with all of his heart, and along the way his son went off to war and lost his life in battle. And the man was overcome with grief. Often he would give himself over to his art collection because it brought him some semblance of joy, but he never got over the grief of losing his son. And sure enough, the day came that the man died. He didn't have any surviving relatives. And when the news hit that he had died, not long thereafter, an auction was scheduled to auction off this amazing, world-renowned art collection. And everyone around came for it. If you had the means and you wanted a piece of art from his collection, you came. They packed out the place, and it was filled with people. There was a hustle and an excitement in the air of people who thought that they were going to get a piece from the collection that they would always treasure. Well, the auctioneer began, called it all to order, but he didn't start with Monet's and Picasso's, the Van Gogh's. He started with a portrait of the man's son. Well, everyone there was really just kind of a bit frustrated. In fact, they started to get a little agitated. They said, get on with things. But the auctioneer held his ground. He said, no, the auction will begin with this portrait of the sun, and I'll begin the bidding at $250. Everyone there was like, get on with things. But yet in the back of the room, one person raised his hand. And he said, I'll take it. Going once and going twice." sold to the man in the back of the room for $250. And after declaring that man to be the one to receive the portrait of the son, the auctioneer quietly opened the envelope, and in it were the instructions from the man's will with one simple sentence. Whoever gets the son gets it all. Whoever gets the son gets gets it all. If there's one way to describe the wonderful truth of Ephesians chapter 1, every spiritual blessing in the heavens are given to us in Christ. You're adopted. You're redeemed. The Holy Spirit has sealed you with the promise of an inheritance that you are going to get. And all of this is made available to you when you get the sign. When you get the sign, you get it all. Can I just tell you, shame is one of the most awful things that is deeply affecting people right and left. So much of our LGBTQ movement has to do with trying to find our value, a sense of belonging. So much of the sin that is so gripping our culture is so many people just trying to find a place that they can belong, something to make them feel whole. And can I tell you, we can look anywhere and everything, everywhere for that which we need, but what we need the most is Christ. And when you enter into a relationship with him, every spiritual blessing in the heavens are made available to you. You're adopted into your family so that you live your life for his glory, being made holy and blameless in his sight. He redeems you in Christ Jesus. You're not just made by him, but you're bought by him. You receive the inheritance. What a joy to live your life in Christ. Do you know him? I'm going to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. I just think about so much. I mentioned one area i watch it all the time people craving to find relationship somewhere to ease the hurt something to make them feel better about the loneliness that they are so gripped with we the pour their lives we pour our lives into so many things just to make it stop so that we don't have to feel like we're filled with shame any longer we do everything that we can that we don't have to Feel distant from the Lord and from everyone else. But can I tell you, to not make the mistake of our first parents and try to cover up our shame without first running to our Savior. And just run to Him. Run to Him and find everything that your heart is longing and looking for and needs. For you to enter into a relationship with the one who created you, the one who redeemed you. There's nothing better than being in right relationship with Jesus. That's when you discover the truest version of yourself is in relationship with Christ. Don't you need him? Guilt is so pervasive, but shame is such an affront to what God says is true of us as we bear his very image. And the answer to shame is Christ. Once not you receive him? want you trust him as your savior. Want you surrender all of your hope and just put it in him. Just rest it all in him today and enter into a relationship with the Lord. Father, I thank you so much for the gospel. I thank you for how it answers our heart's deepest longings and cravings. How it settles the needs that we have. Father, I pray that as we turn to you today that we can find all that we need. Father, if there's anyone here today That needs a relationship with you. May they enter into the deep, deep love of the Father. And in Christ's name we pray, amen.